0: Open your Bibles to 1st Peter, chapter number 1. me welcome those who are joining us now by live stream. Sorry for the delay there, but I'm glad you're able to join us. 1st Peter, chapter 1, let me just say to our church congregation that is at home and to those who are here, a couple things. One is, uh, please be praying for our missionaries. Please be praying for missionaries around the world. And I don't really know how much people are informed um, as far as Americans regard to Christianity around the world, particularly missionaries. Many missionaries are either stuck where they're at, that could be on their mission field. It could be somewhere else. Um, Many missionaries are coming home because they can't stay where they're at for whatever reason. And so... Uh, so we pray for the missionaries and pray for the places that they're ministering to. Honestly, there is a void around this world of missionaries leaving. And and we believe that God has a purpose in this, right? If we look at history and missions and when missionaries are evacuated or they're chased out of the country, it's a very bad thing. We don't want that. People are killed. Missionaries are killed. It's a very bad thing. But also God uses that to actually... Um, cause the church to grow. And so that's that's something we believe can happen and God will do around this world. But also it's a very difficult time. So please be praying for our missionaries. Please be praying for souls around the world. And please be praying for our country. Um, What's happening in our country is affecting ministries. There's churches around this country that are facing some severe difficulties. There's ministries, parachurch ministries, like camps and colleges. Uh, I think over the next months, maybe even year, we'll find out. Many of those places are not able to financially survive. So there's going to be a big impact because of this. And so I think it's time for us to now pray for those ministries and for those people and, uh, and ask God will intervene. So if you know, if you're connected to some of those different places, please be praying for them. I only want to mention that because I just want to make sure I present that to you as information that maybe you know about, about maybe you don't know about. But either way, we need to be aware of this so we can be praying for the Lord's work in those places. 1 Peter chapter 1. This past week, I read a, a testimony or really a, a story about a missionary who was in Europe. And he drove down to the Netherlands, into Holland. And as he went in there, there was a car. As he drove in, there was a car that was behind him that was flicking his lights at him. And so he pulled over and this car, uh, pulled over as well. And this Dutchman got out, and he came over to the side of the vehicle, knocked on his window, and he said, hey, your, your lights are out. Your brake lights are out back there. And so he was letting this American missionary know this. And the American rolled down his window and started speaking. And of course, his accent gave him away that he was American. And so the, this Dutchman, he said, got really excited. He says, oh, you're American. Are you American? He said, yeah, I'm, I'm American. He said, he got really excited. He said, oh, go into town. I'm going to take care of your brake lights, and I'll, I'm going to take care of you. And so they both drove into town, and sure enough, this Dutchman uh, repaired his, or went to a repair shop and repaired his lights and, uh, and got him food and took care of him. And when they were sitting down talking, he said, I want to, let me tell you why I love America, why I love Americans. He said, in World War II, I lived in Holland with my family, my parents, and he was a child at the time. For five years, the Nazis occupied our, our, our state, our country, and they were very oppressive. They, they bombed our cities, they burned, they burned um, our homes, they, uh, li- many lived in our homes, they stole things from us, they, they tracked down and, and, uh, our men and our boys and conscripted them into service, sent some people off to concentration camps, kill, killed other people who didn't follow along. Like, it was a, a very cruel and difficult time. In 1944, they blew up our dams, and it washed away all of our food supply. And in September of 1944, he was saying that 1,000 people a day were dying of starvation in Holland. And so, if you if you see pictures of these of these children that were of that age, like you can see that they look like they're in a concentration camp. That's how uh, terrible they looked. But he said the Americans came even when the, the Nazis were occupying Holland. The Americans came in a mission called Operation um, Mana. And they took their B-17 bombers and they filled them with food and they flew about 400 feet above the ground, even though the, there, there was you know, guns that are pointed at their, their planes, even at the risk of their own lives. They sent 400 uh, B-17 flyers to drop food down for them, to these starving people, and, and literally saved Holland from starvation. And then eventually the Americans came in, fought the Nazis, many of them. It was one of the strongholds, actually, in the war, in World War II. And many Americans died. It's actually a cemetery. I think there's maybe two cemeteries in Holland. They still actually, at this time, were taking care of the cemetery. They were putting flags out there. They were putting flowers out there. And so whatever your view of all that stuff is, they had a a particular view. Particularly this man had a a wonderful view, a, a delightful view of America because it saved his life. And therefore, this man said in 1945, he decided that he would never forget about what these American soldiers did. And every time he saw an American, he would seek to show kindness to that person. Now, not everyone's been treated that way by Americans. Okay, so not everyone feels that way. But, but these people in Holland did. And, and why did these people, why did they respond like this, particularly this Dutchman? Why did he respond like this to when he saw an American like that? And it's because he appreciated the sacrifice of these Americans on his behalf. And we're here, we're talking today about what motivates us. In fact, oh, I didn't even show you a picture. There you go. There's a picture of it right there. We're talking about what motivates us to to follow Christ. And that is the desire to honor him based upon the fact that he gave his life for us. And he has given us a great salvation. And we're talking about God's salvation and how we can live that out. We saw five commands, or we're looking at five commands of how to live out our salvation. So in verse 13, we talked about our minds. Verse 15, we talked about how we're to have a conduct that's set aside, that's holy unto the Lord. And in verse 18, we're talking about how our conduct should be motivated by fear. So we're speaking of our motivations. If you look down in verse 18, he says, conduct yourselves with fear. And we said this is speaking of what should motivate our conduct. And we said conduct there is a passive. It's something that happens to you. It's something that should control you. And what is it that should control you? It's fear. The fear of God should control our conduct. It's probably good to recognize right here that fear controls a lot of things in our life. It's actually a very powerful motivator. Fear controls much of what people do. I mean, think about it this way we've shut down an entire world <laughs> based upon fear, right? I mean, if you don't think it's a motivator, look around our world. Fear runs middle schools and high schools, right? You have some kids who are afraid of failure, so they are intense on making sure that they excel in whatever field they're in, whether it be their sports or their academics. Some fear the kids around them that they're not going to fit in, or maybe this girl won't like this, per- like her, or a boy won't like them. And so they, they, in some sense, allow fear to rule their life. Politicians rule by fear. Many of them do. They use power to manipulate and pressure people to follow them. They are actually ruled by fear themselves. Many of them are because they're, they fear losing power. They fear falling out of the graces of people that they consider important. So people fear death. People fear people. People feel fear, fear loss. People fear opinions of others. You kind of get the point. Like, it's a pretty powerful motivator. Fear is a very powerful motivator. And we can look at fear like that. We can say, oh, well, that's a bad thing. Isn't, isn't fear a bad thing? No, actually fear is a gift from God. It can be bad, but fear is actually a good gift God has given to us. It's a good gift God has given to us. Just think about fear and think about how it can be good. Yesterday I was in a tree and I was trying to get a swing like adjusted up there. I couldn't get it. So someone was at our house and they were a lot taller than me and they were able to get it. I had a little bit of fear. Well, I'm kind of scared of heights. I had a lot of fear of falling. It's it's not a bad thing, right? It's it's a good thing to have some level of fear. It keeps us from harm. But what what Satan does is he actually takes God's good gift, and he does this with all of God's good gifts. He takes God's good gifts. He he twists it into something sinful. He takes God out of the picture and replaces people and things instead of God. And so what Satan tricks people to to fear people, to fear opinions, to fear things, instead of fearing God. But the Bible commands us to, first and foremost, above all else, that we are to fear God. And the fear of God should control us, and it actually should control our other fears, right? In other words, uh, if I fear God, it will control my fears so that I have a healthy fear for certain things. For instance... The other day I was in my office and I heard someone outside and uh, it was someone from uh, in the community and they came there and I thought to myself, Ben, you should go give that person the gospel. Now, do you think I was afraid? Yes. Okay. Even if you're a pastor, you get afraid to talk to people about Jesus. Okay. But I thought I'm going to go out there and I'm going to give them Jesus. And my philosophy is if you walk on our property, you're going to hear about Jesus. Okay. And so anyways, so I did that. But the point is, the fear of God actually controlled my fears. And there's a healthy fear I had in some sense, but it was not a fear that led me away from talking to him. In some sense, it was a fear that drove me to talk to him and be careful what I said around him. So the point is, is that we talked last week about how the fear of God should control us, this desire to say, I'm going to honor you. Again, it's not a terrifying fear of God. If we're children of God, we're not terrified of God, but we reverentially Fear him. So last week we said there's two reasons that we should fear God. First, it's because we have a loving Father who judges us, who judges us impartially. In fact, look down in verse, in fact, we'll read the whole text here, but notice as we go through here, you can see those two parts. So verse 17 starts off uh, the context here where we're talking about. And have we have we stood in a while? Are you guys tired of sitting? Okay, why don't you stand up, okay? I'll be the only one to read, but you can stand up. Maybe that will help you out a little bit. That way you don't fall asleep on me. And that way uh, your legs don't get stiff. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 says, Knowing, I'm sorry, verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. That's worth repeating, isn't it? For the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Let's ask God's blessing upon his word. Father, we ask that you will you'll give us grace during this time. There are a lot of fears in this world. There are a lot of people who are struggling with sinful fear. But God, may our hearts first and foremost submit to you. May we reverentially seek to honor you in everything we do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. When I was growing up, my dad was a pastor of the church I was at. He was also the administrator of the school I was at. And so everywhere I went, I was Dennis Ice's kid, and I couldn't get away from it. If I went on a field trip, somewhere like Indianapolis, they have a place called Connor Prairie, which is like an old, um, you know, 18th century little village. You know, if I wanted to jump over the fence and run around and break the rules, in my mind, I thought, I'm Dennis Ice's son, and these teachers know him personally, he's actually the headmaster at my school. He actually called himself headmaster. I mean, that, he was the one in charge. And then he was also my, my, my there's a pastor in our church. So when I was in Sunday school, my teacher, you know, I paid attention thinking, oh, my teacher knows, my dad. It, it, it controlled my life in some sense, right? There's there a healthy, I think, fear when I went to my friend's house even, you know, and he said, hey, let's watch Knight Rider, you know, and I'm not allowed to watch Knight Rider, you know. So there's a sense where I know that eventually it's going to get back to my dad that I watched Knight Rider, my point is, is that there was no such thing as a day that I was not my father's son. And that, that understanding, that if you want to say that reverential fear, it actually affected me. And the same is true for us. We are, we are children of the father. And, and there's not a day that goes by that we should, we should not consider that. We should consider the fact that he is our father, and therefore he's our father when we're at home. He's our father when we're at work. He's our father when we are in the movie theater, when that opens up again. He's our father wherever we are. He's our father when you're on that date with that girl, right? So everything we do is, is filtered with this understanding that God is our father, and he's a loving father who judges impartially, and therefore I desire to honor him. And what a wonderful picture he gives in verse 17. If you look in verse 17, just of this father-child relationship. Here we, we call on him like a child would, his father. He, he God disciplines us impartially, judges us impartially, like a father does. And, and it's, it's, it's actually a very healthy way to view God in the context of a father and a parent-father-child relationship. Children, they should honor their parents, right? Isn't that what the Bible tells us to do? The favorite passage here for um, all parents. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, right? So if you're a kid in here, you're still in the home, you're under the authority of your parents, you should recognize that God has actually placed your parents above you as your authority, and your duty is right there, is to obey. That's your duty. Well, why? You know, have you ever asked that to your parents? Why? You know, here we go. Why? Because we're to do everything In the Lord, there's a sense where first and foremost, I fear God as a child. So I say, God, I want to honor you. Therefore, I want to honor my parents. I want to obey my parents. And and secondly, you want to honor your parents. And so you can see that there in verse number two, honor your father and mother. And the same is true for, for, for fathers and mothers. We are to, to operate in our home in the context that God is the one that we're seeking to honor. So fathers don't provoke your children to anger. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So, everything we're doing is in the context of God, I I fear you as my father. I want to honor you as my father. Therefore, how I operate in the home is under that understanding. So, if I'm a, a parent and I just am going off the handle, I'm screaming at my kids and I'm provoking them to wrath, I'm not doing that in the Lord, of the Lord there, right? I'm not living under the fear of God. But actually, I should do it like this with kind of these two approaches, and that is one is discipline and instruction. And this is kind of helping us, I think, to understand how God approaches us. The idea of discipline is is that a parent will allow their children to have some kind of loving pain, So that it will redirect the child away from sin and foolishness towards the way of Christ, right? Kids by nature are foolish. And when you live a foolish life, what happens? There's pain in life. So as parents, we're trying to teach them, hey, you know, if you put your finger in the light socket, it's going to be painful, you know? Sometimes you allow your kids pain by natural consequence. Sometimes like putting your finger in the light socket could really kill them. You say, I'm going to let you, I'm going to give you pain. (laughs) So you recognize that that's painful. The most important reason we do it, or I should say this, the reason we do it is because we love our kids, right? We love our kids. So it's not mean to them. And I would say what, one of the things we're really trying to teach them is this, is that we want them to see that life is painful apart from God, but most importantly, eternity is painful apart from God. And so you have this discipline aspect where we're trying to redirect them to the Lord. And then instruction actually is an interesting word there. It's nuthesia, which is actually a word we use for biblical counseling. If you ever heard of nuthetic counseling, might maybe have, maybe haven't, by a guy named James Adams, who was kind <clears> of <throat> the father of biblical counseling in the, in the 20th century. But anyways, the idea is that we are, the idea of this word, it's a compound word, which means to set one's mind in order. It's kind of like to arrange someone's thoughts in a particular order. It's really a good description of what parents are trying to do. We're trying to arrange our children's minds and, and wisdom with God's word, reorder their thinking to think how God wants them to think, most importantly, in submission to the Lord and faith. So this is this is what God is doing to us. The Bible says that God is disciplining us, just like a father does with his children, therefore God does with us. And this should be something that's motivational for us, motivational to honor him, because he is like a loving father who cares enough to bring some pain into our life so that we'll be redirected. And where are we redirected to? We're redirected to him, like he wants us to come back to himself and to follow his path. So this is the first motivation and the second one we find in verse 18, which says we should be motivated by the desire to honor God because we have a loving redeemer who was condemned in our place. Look at verse, look at verse 18. It says, knowing that you were ransomed. Knowing that you were ransomed. So this word knowing is, is considering this. It's not like boring, dry knowledge. It's not like, let's give you some dry knowledge. It's consider this. Like consider what Christ has done for you and allow that to motivate you to say, I want to live my life to honor God. So what has Christ done for you? Well, first he says there, Christ has ransomed us. Or I should say, God has ransomed us. You might have a translation that says, redeemed, translates that word as redeemed. Both have kind of the same idea, and it's the idea of this, is that you purchase someone so they can be set free. So the idea of redemption or ransoming is you purchase someone so they can be set free. This was used in a number of different contexts. Uh, sometimes was used in the context of, a, of a, um, a soldier who was taken away by the enemy, and so he was a soldier of war. He was in prison, And the family or the home country would purchase him to come back home to live. So he was redeemed to come back home. Most commonly, it was used in regard to slaves being purchased. A slave who was under the mastery of an owner being purchased to freedom. One commentator actually has a really interesting description of this. He he says in the Greco-Roman practice of redemption, it actually took place in the context of the temple. And, and not the temple of Jerusalem, but the idolatrous, uh, wicked um, idol, um, temp- uh, the wicked temple of idols and goddesses. and, and So what they would do is the, the slave and the master would go to the temple where there was a lot of sacrifices, a lot of sin took place, things you can't say out in public. Um, because it was so bad, but they would take these, these two people would come there and they would take the gold or the silver, whatever was going to be used to redeem this slave so he could be set free. They'd take it to this temple and they would give the money to that God, that idol or that goddess, and they would redeem. And so the idea was no longer was this, was this slave owned by this master, but now the slave was owned by this God or goddess and they were free to live in the context of that. And so that's kind of the picture that he's giving here. In fact, I think what he's doing here is he's saying, listen, that was, this is the empty religious practice that you were purchased from. Like that's not, I should say this way, that's not how God purchases us. It's not with silver and gold, with things that perish. It's not with these empty religious practices that you were once a part of with these stone idols and these, these temples and all that kind of stuff. And so I think what Peter's doing here, he's making it a clear distinction between how the world views redemption and freedom, and how God views redemption and freedom. I mean, think about it like this. In verse 18, he says that you inherited some ideas from your fathers, right? So in other words, there's, there's worldly ideas. There's something that's passed on to us, usually from a culture or a society, but if some in some way there's something inherited, or something passed on to people. It's an idea of here's what truth is, or here's what here's how you should believe. And they recognize within that society some kind of problem that's taking place. And they have an idea of redemption. Here's how you can have freedom, and here's how you can have freedom within that context, or whatever that is. And but the end of it is emptiness. It's kind of what he's teaching here in verse 18. And I really believe, according to the scriptures, there's two approaches to life. You either seek redemption and freedom through worldly means or you seek redemption and freedom through Christ and his eternal work. So you get that? You either seek redemption no matter what society you're in. This is universal. You either seek redemption and freedom through worldly means or you seek it through Christ. I believe that's what the Bible teaches. So let's think of some examples. Think about the American society we live in. Americans, we want to be happy, right? Some people are stressed out, so they don't want stress in their life. They, some people are suffering, so they don't want suffering. Some people have difficulties with, with people, and so they want to get rid of those problems with people. And so <clears throat> if you're lacking happiness, what does America say you, how you can have freedom and, and have that happiness? What, where do we find that redemption at? Well, if you make more money, you'll be happier, right? If you're more successful, you'll be happier, right? If if you are stressed out or you have a problem in your life, if you can dull the pain, you can be happier. Like redemption can be found in alcohol. Like take the edge off tonight. Just take a little drink or pop this pill or shoot this up, and it'll kind of take away your problem. So so you see kind of the cycle. It's like here here's the world's ideas. Here's the problem they see in the world, and they have some kind of way to redeem themselves. But in the end of the day, it leaves them empty, right? You can be a millionaire and you can be as lonely and and purposeless as anybody else, and you can be uh, a drug addict, and you can find your life is empty. And see, so that, that's, that's how the world operates. Of course, within this context, I think he was talking about religious traditions that are here. And so you can, I think if you look down in verse 18, I think when he talks about the forefathers, sometimes people read that and they think, well, that's talking about Jewish forefathers, right? Weren't these Jewish people? Well, no, these were Gentiles. And you say, well, how do you know that? Well, there's, a, there's a couple texts that tell us that here in 1 Peter and 2 Peter, but but I believe they were Gentiles, particularly because of this passage right here. You know, think about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Did they pass along feudal beliefs? No, they passed along the belief of Yahweh God. They passed along the Old Testament. So their forefathers, the Jewish forefathers, did not pass. Now there were some forefathers that passed around feudal things, but. the forefathers for the Jewish people did not. Therefore, I believe he's talking here about about Gentiles and and, and the forefathers that pass upon these religious traditions. And there's, there's some comfort and there's some comfort and some normality and some belonging that's a part of tradition, right? Whatever you grew up in, there's a sense where you feel like a warm, fuzzy feeling when you revisit that. Maybe you Eat that food that your mama made when you're growing up. Or maybe you, you know, go back to that place and smell those smells or see those signs, you know. So there's, there's a sense of we like belonging, we like tradition, and traditions aren't necessarily bad. I mean, many traditions are neutral. For instance, if you're going to walk into your house, do you take your shoes off or do you keep them on? It's not really morally connected. It's, there's no really right or wrong with that. It's something that the culture kind of passes on. Or do you eat with your, when you eat food, do you eat with your hands? Or do you eat with a a metal object? Or do you eat with a wooden object that's long and, you know, what are you supposed to do? What's the right thing to do? Well, that's a tradition that's passed on. It's not any moral connections. But many traditions are actually are tied to religious and moral meaning. So if you grew up a Buddhist. There are a lot of expectations of things that you will follow because that's how you grew up. So your your family was is going to pressure you to say, you should follow these things. Or if you grew up Catholic or Orthodox or Jewish, even Baptist, right? Your pre- your family might pressure you to say, you this is how you grew up. This is what you should do. But of course, we don't follow just tradition, right? We follow God's word. We seek to follow God's word and live within the context. And so... Religious and cultural traditions, they kind of many times have their ideas of here's what truth is, kind of like I said, the world's ideas. This is what you should do. This is how a person should live. And and they also have their own ideas of what the problem is. They also have their own idea of what redemption is. Let me just give you some examples to kind of some of you might be a little lost here. So let me just give some real life examples of some different major world systems and kind of how this fits within this up here. So let's think of something like Hinduism. First, let me say that we have many people in our area who are Hindus, and they're lovely people. And we should show love to them and kindness to them. This is not about people. This is about belief systems that I'm going to share here, okay? So if you know people in these contexts, you should love them, show Christ's love to them, because that's what we're called to do. But think about this, the, the belief system of something like Hinduism. So they recognize that there's a problem with humanity, and they have a form of redemption. What is their form of redemption? Well, if you live you know, a good life, a better life, hopefully you'll be redeemed and come back as a better thing. You know? If you're not a good person, then you're going to come back as something worse, like a rat, if you think that's a bad thing. I think those are bad things. But... And, and the hope is that you can keep being reincarnated So at some point in life, you can be a part of the divine reality, whatever that is. But you can kind of see what that looks like. They have their idea of the problem. And what is redemption for them? It's just reincarnation. Or think about Buddhism, for instance. Buddhism sees the problem as suffering. And kind of the attachment to things. And to desires. And so you're trying to detach yourself from things. From desires. And so really, if you could say it this way. Their idea of, of redemption is detaching yourself. Following the eightfold path. Hopefully you can detach yourself enough that you can experience nirvana, and you can actually experience emptiness, which in irony is actually what the Bible says is the end of all these different kind of religions. Islam, they have their ideas of the problem is that you don't follow Allah, and so if you don't obey Allah, that's a sin, and that's condemned with hell. So therefore, their idea of redemption is you become a Muslim, and you become a good Muslim, where you... Follow the pillars of Islam, and hopefully someday you can actually go to paradise. And again, it ends in emptiness. Let me just say one last one, and that is the religion. I think I've said this before, but it's always worth mentioning for us to keep thinking in this way. And that is the, that is the religion of secular humanism. Now, some of you might be like, what does that mean? Okay, Secular humanism believes, basically, there's no God. I mean, truly, I think they believe that they are their gods themselves, right? They rule their own life. But the idea is there's no God. We're all just human animals. We live by instinct. There's no absolute truth, except for that statement, that there's no absolute truth, and for the absolute truth that they create. Right? This is generally what's taught in our public education system, Okay, particularly in our universities and colleges. Um, and so it's, it's the religion of secular humanism. Now, they might not say religion, but that's what it is in some sense. And they see the problem in our world as a lack of enlightenment. A lack of really seeing the world like they see the world. So their idea is, is that you sin against secular humanism if you don't agree with their views. Now I just want you to think about the context of what's happening in our society. So here you've had at least one generation, if not two generations, that have grown up with this religion being taught to them, even if it's not taught as a religion, and you can kind of see it being played out right, right now. People are actually living what they believe in our society, and that is this idea of secular humanism. And, and how do you redeem? How can you be redeemed in this kind of secular humanism? How can you be redeemed? Well, you throw off moral constraints, and you educate people. So if you notice, you'll see a lot of this kind of terminology. Oh, I'm, we need to all learn from each other. We need to, all, we need to be, gain more understanding. We need to have better education. And believe me, we should have better education. I completely agree with that. But it's the idea of what they think education is, and that's in context of their religious system that they have, uh, secular humanism. I was, so side note, wasn't planning on saying this, but I was reading an article that said that Penn State, I think it's Penn State, has a statue up right now of George Whitfield. And George Whitfield actually was uh, a great preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He actually bought land in Georgia so he could have a school for slaves because they weren't being educated. So he was all about educating slaves so they could read and write and they could grow up and, and they actually could have a good education. And so some people want to get rid of his statue there because they said, well, you know, he uh, was a person that actually was in favor of slavery because he would buy slaves and then, and then be able to uh, um, educate them and, and try to help them. And my point is, is that there's, there's a bunch of debate about all that stuff. But my point is Christianity, we're actually about educating people so we don't go against education but we want to educate them with the truth of God's word in the context of that. My point is secular humanists kind of view the idea that that we can have redemption if we just enlightened everyone with what we believe is true. But actually, in the end of it, it's it's emptiness. It's actually a a futile way of thinking and living. And my point of saying all those different things is not to attack different people and institutions and all that kind of stuff. My point is this, is that, it's helpful for us to understand how does the world think? How does the world operate? They have their ideas. They, they see the problems. They have their idea of what redemption looks like. And, and for many people, there is actually no such thing as redemption. Like They try it, but you can try as much as you want, but you probably won't ever get it. And then, and then it ends in emptiness. It's a futile way of thinking. And God wants us in verse 18 to understand that's what you used to believe. That like you were ransomed from that, out of that. So look at verse 18, it says, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. So the questions for us is this, what is, what is truth, if you want to say it that way, what are, the, what are God's ideas of how reality really is? What is really the problem? What is true redemption and, and how do you get out of that cycle? And, and of course, that's what we're going to talk about the rest of the time here. And that is that, that we... See the word of God as truth, because God's word is truth. The problem is sin, and really sin is just living a life apart from God. It's seeking to to honor yourself above God, or just completely remove God and replace yourself with God. In fact, look in 1 Peter 2, look at verse 11. You can kind of see this this war that's taking place within a person's heart. It's really a a war of, of replacing yourself with God, He says in verse 11 of 1 Peter 2 that we are to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Sin, again, living apart from God, it's it's, it's like a war in your soul. And it, 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 in some sense, tortures your soul, it causes you a lot of pain. And so he says, for Christians, guys, you've got to stay away from that. You've got to abstain from that. But we should recognize that that right there is the problem our world faces. It's a life apart from God. It's a life ruled by self. It's a life of sin. So what's the answer to that? What's the answer to that? Well, he says in verse 19, he says, verse 18, you were ransomed, verse 19, with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or without spot. Christian, God has purchased you with Jesus Christ's finished work. I mean, let that settle in. You were purchased by God based upon the substitutionary atonement of Christ. when When you read verse 19, your mind should go back to the Old Testament, to the Old Testament sacrificial system, particularly Exodus. Remember Exodus, the The Jewish people were enslaved by the Egyptians, and God promised them, he says in Exodus 6.6, I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. In other words, you're enslaved to sin and to the system of Egypt, and I'm going to buy you, I'm going to redeem you out with great acts of judgment. What was the great act of judgment that God used to buy them out, to redeem them? Remember, it was the death of the firstborn son in every home in the land of Egypt. In every home, Jewish home, Egyptian home, didn't matter. God was going to bring a judgment upon Egypt for sin. But God said those who took a a lamb without blemish, without spot, and they sacrifice that lamb and they put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and the lintels of their house that the, God promised if you trust the Lord in that way, then you would experience freedom from the death, from death in your home and eventually freedom from slavery. And if you didn't trust the Lord in that way, in other words, if you lived life apart from God and said, it doesn't matter, I'm gonna just live my life like I want to live it, then you would experience judgment. And what's interesting in that passage in Exodus, that the Bible says that the blood was a sign for them. And when they sacrificed that lamb, there was, the blood came out. It was not magical. It wasn't like this magical blood you put on the doorpost and the, you know, God would like, oh, get away. You know, it was actually a sign that God would fulfill his promise that, that he would purchase you with the blood of that animal and you would have freedom. So if you look down in verse 19, you see it says, the, the precious blood of Christ. And again, we should recall this idea of, of what happened with Israel in Egypt. The Jews were under slavery to Egypt. And, and we, as humanity, we are enslaved to sin. And the Jewish people and the Egyptian people faced the possibility of death, the death of the firstborn, and we face the certain consequence of eternal death for our sin. And like they were, the Jews were to sacrifice a, a one-year-old spotless lamb, God sent his son, the spotless lamb, as a substitute for our sin. And that lamb for the, Egyptian, or for the Israelites was to represent that God redeemed them, Jesus wasn't just a representative. He actually was the Redeemer. He actually was the Lamb of God that died in your place. So Jesus didn't just represent redemption. His death purchased redemption, eternal redemption for us. And if you look at verse 18, this is very interesting. He says, you were redeemed. Again, this is the idea that a point in time, God purchased you. It's something that happened to you. It's a passive. It's an heiress, a point in time. So that at a point in time, God purchased you. When was that? It's when Jesus died on the cross for your sins and he shed his blood. And Jesus is the perfect eternal lamb. And you know, you can't pay for your own sin. You know why? Because you're not perfect and you're not eternal. You deserve an eternal, punishment for your sin, but you can't pay for your sin on your own. Only a perfect person. And that's why God came to be a human and he was truly God, truly human. and He lived a perfect life and he died in your place. Only Jesus can pay the purchase price. Now, have you ever sold anything online? You, know, you sold something online and then someone came to pick it up? And uh, you ever had anyone try this trick on you? Maybe you're selling a table, but say you're selling it for $100, right? So you have a table out there, and someone says, I want to buy it. They come by, and they examine the table, and they look really interested, and you're thinking, okay, right, this is a sale. We're gonna..." They said they want to buy it, and then they go, oh, I only bought $50. <laughs> Has anyone ever had that happen? Yes, uh-huh, I've had. We've, uh, not me, but she's had that happen, Dana. And it's like, really? It's like, oh, I'm so sorry. Well, I could could go all the way to my home on the other side of LA, you know, and get the money for you, or, or I guess that's what I can do, you know? Now, if you're weak-kneed, if you want to say it that way, you'll probably be like, oh, okay. But if you're like, some people I know, you're going to be like, no, I'm sorry, you got to bring the hundred bucks. Like, go get the hundred dollars. Well, I'll wait for you, you know? In other words, if you ask for a price, you have to pay the full price. Like, you don't go to, to, to target and negotiate, you will know, be like, oh, I, I like this dress. I'm thinking maybe it says a hundred dollars. I think I'll go 50. Like, that's not how it works. And you, don't, you don't negotiate with God. You don't go to God and say, hey, I got, so I got some good works here. Gave some silver and gold or some money when I was on earth at church. And uh, so I, I got most of it. You know, is that good enough? It's like, no, the full purchase price must be paid. And Jesus was the one that paid that price for us with his life. So verse 19, he says, this, this blood is, is precious which means it's something that is highly honored. Again, this is not magical. It's not like his blood coming out with some kind of magical thing. You know, sometimes people view it that way. It's not that at all. It's actually something that is highly honored. We, we praise God for it. We, we sing about it. We cherish it. We say nothing but the blood. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Why is that? Because that blood is a sign. When the blood was shed, it was a sign that God accepted. The, accepted the sacrifice. This was a sacrifice that was sufficient, that was in your place. God's, or Jesus' blood was the proof that God purchased redemption for you. So look at verse 20. He says that Jesus kind of does an overview of the redemptive plan. I mean, how can you talk about redemption and then not do an overview, right? So it's kind of like, here's a, here's a footnote but it's actually like a big footnote, right? Because this is a pretty important thing. Verse 20, he, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Now, Jesus preexisted creation. He is God. He claimed to be God. He is the I am. So he's never had a beginning, will never have an ending. He's God. He preexisted. So what is this talking about in verse 20, that he was foreknown before the foundation of the world? Well, this speaks to the eternal plan of the father, To send Jesus as the redeemer of the world. So this speaks of God planning to have Jesus come before there was even a creation. And the word foreknown actually is an interesting one. Look at verse number two of chapter one. You can see, remember, I said the same word was used in chapter two. And in chapter, I'm sorry, chapter uh, one, verse two. Chapter one, verse two. So you look in verse two. You can see that it says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. If you look back in verse 1, it's saying that we're elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Remember, we said this was actually the word foreknowledge speaks of God set choosing to set his love on people. So it's actually a very compassionate, intimate word. It's like it's not just making a decision, but it's actually saying, I want to set my love on these people. And that's in verse number one and two, it says elect. Here it's in regard to Jesus coming. And so God chose to set his love on his son by coming into the world to be the redeemer. And then verse 20, look at verse 20. It says, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. So God, God's plan was established before time. Look at verse 18. He says that in verse 18 that, that we were ransomed. So that take, took place in time. And then look at verse 20 again the middle of the verse, it says, but he was made manifest in the last times. That's our time right now. So you can see here, it's this plan was before time. It took place in time. And now in the last times, which were in the last times, now it's proclaimed to us. Why? That's a good question to ask. Like, why? Why before time? Why in time? Why not? Like what's, the, what's all, it's just like, God's like, oh, what's, this is a great plan. Let's do this. This is a good idea. Like, what does it say at the very end of verse 20? Why God did this? For the sake of you. Isn't that a pretty cool phrase right there? For you, God did this. That's amazing. Think of the wonder of that statement. Before time, within time, and now in our time, all this uh, has culminated for us to know about salvation and to experience the salvation of the Lord. If that doesn't put the wonder and fear of God in our hearts and motivate us to say, everything in my life should be about honoring God, who knows what will. If you have perspective and you can see what's going on from God's perspective. You can recognize that God did all of this for his glory and for you, for your good. And that's amazing to think about. Why would we not surrender our hearts and our lives to Jesus Christ? I mean, imagine if I was going to say to you, hey, listen, we're going to surprise Dana with a party when her birthday comes up. We're going to have a big party. And I planned it for months. I, uh, we purchased things. I purchase things for her. That morning she gets up and I'm like, hey, we're going to have a great big party. Can you imagine if she was like, ah, oh, whatever. She wouldn't do that, would she? Why? Because people cherish things that are given to them like that. Especially things that are planned like that, right? God has planned this for you. How can we walk away from the wonderful plan of God? He did this for you. Look at verse 27. So that you, he did this for you, so that who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead, gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. What's our response to God's redemptive work for us? We believe it. It's faith, and we hope in it. We long, we long for the work to be Completed when we gather with him in heaven. We long for God. If we truly understand what Christ has done for us. We will surrender our hearts and lives to him. And seek to honor him. And that the desire to honor him should control our conduct. Should control our conduct. I just want to go back to this and think about it. God has given us truth. It's the truth of his word. We all have a problem of sin. And the question before us today. Do you recognize that you've lived life apart from God, and you recognize that Jesus has purchased your redemption. And listen, if you give your life to Christ in faith and hope, he promises freedom, freedom. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And that's what Christ promises. I read a a part of a book that's called On the Grace of God. And it has a story in it that's pretty compelling. He tells the story, so I'm going to say it's true, okay? I've never heard this story before, but it's a story about Abraham Lincoln. Of course, Abraham Lincoln was a great abolitionist. He was the president that was uh, actually campaigned against slavery. And then, in the end of the day, he was the one that emancipated the slaves. Before he was president, when he was still going around Illinois and other parts of the country, and he was having debates about slavery... He went to a slave market. And they were selling people there. They were selling people with dark skin there, selling black people. And he was appalled by it. He he hated what was going on. But he saw this girl, this young girl, walk up on the auction block there. And he saw this, this innocent girl, and his heart was just so moved by what he saw. People started bidding on her like she was just some piece of property his heart was so moved that Lincoln decided that he was going to pay for her redemption no matter what it costs. So he started bidding on her. And eventually, he actually ended up buying her. And she came down with her head down low and walked up next to him, ready to go with him as her master. And, and Abraham Lincoln said this to her. He said, young lady, you are free. And she said, Free? What is that supposed to mean? He said, it means you're free. You're completely free. She said, does that mean I can do what I want to do? And he said, yes. Go do whatever you want to do. And she said, is it free to say what I want to say? And he said, yes, go say what you want to say. Does freedom mean I can go wherever I want to go? Abraham Lincoln said, it means exactly You can go wherever you want to go. And with tears of joy and gratitude welling up in her eyes, she said this, then I want to go with you. I want to go with you. Isn't that a great picture, though, right there? As horrible as all that was in that history of that time. was not that a great picture of what God has done for us? He has freed us. And he's so loving. He's so kind. Jesus has given his life for us. How can we not say, Lord, I want to honor you. I want to follow you. And if you're without Christ, let me invite you to surrender your life to Jesus Christ today. Let me encourage you to find redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins. And then Christians, last week I gave you this assignment to ask yourself these two two questions. Why am I doing this today? Am I honoring the Lord? And, And I wonder if you did that this week. And if you didn't, don't feel guilty about that. But are you motivated by what Christ has done for us? Are you motivated by how God operates as a a father with us? And Lord willing, it should motivate us to say, God, everything I do, I want to do to honor you. Let's pray. As I'm about to pray, let me encourage you to go to the Lord in prayer in your heart. And if the Lord has worked in your heart in a particular way, would you just call on him right now? And as a child calls on a father, would you pray to him if you're a child of God? And if if you're without Christ, let me encourage you to call on him to be your Lord, to be your Savior. Lord, I pray that those who heard my voice this morning in this congregation, maybe even those um, not here, I pray they will remember the words that are true from your word, and anything that I said that confuses or, or is just my own ideas, I pray they won't remember that. I pray your, your word, your truth will last. It promises it will, and I pray it will last in the hearts of people. May it control, may it control how we think, what we say, what we do. May the understanding of who you are and how you operate and what you've done for us, God, I pray that it will compel us to surrender our lives to you. Our lives are not our own. We are bought with a price. May we glorify you, Lord, in our body and our spirit, which are not ours. They are yours. We live in a difficult time, Lord, when there's a lot of things we're consuming through media, uh, through conversations. And so I pray most importantly that we will consume, if you can use that word, your word. May we feast on the word of God each day. Help it to align our hearts and our minds to you. And then, Lord, this is such a crazy time But you work in crazy times. So I pray that this will be a time where people will come to Christ. Help us to be faithful lights and faithful witnesses. May our testimony shine clearly. Because our testimony is about honoring you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.